I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I am so thrilled to be here tonight introducing A, one of my favourite humans, and B, really one of my favourite writers. Francesca is the author of two extraordinary novels, The Innocence and The Awkward Age, and I mean, I think her writing is absolutely magnificent, but also her ability to survey communities and individuals and the interplay between them and to write about love, care, responsibility is unparalleled. After I read her first book, I found it almost physically unnerving how much she understood about people and perhaps how much she might understand about me that I didn't know. And those gifts reappear in this book in a completely different way. Francesca's going to explain to us what what this book is, but in short, it's a memoir in which she deals with some of the themes of her fiction in um, an uncompromising, ferocious and unbelievably tender way. I've, I've read Mothership three times now, the last time on the train this morning, and every time I've just wept through it, not because it's sentimental or tear-jerking, but because it achieves a revelation of, of vulnerability that, and carefulness and care that's like nothing really I've ever read. It's a, it's a wonderful book, so if you haven't read it yet, you should be very excited indeed. Francesca is going to read for a little bit, and then we will talk. There might be another tiny reading, and then you guys can also ask questions. This is, the book is in the form of a diary, so I thought it would make sense to read from day one, although it does start at day minus one, um, if that makes any sense. Day one, Saturday 3rd of October. Though it is 4am, I feel clear as a bell, able to stand, to walk, to request the removal of the catheter that I will otherwise, God help me, remove myself. Last night I was drugged. This morning I am electrified. Somewhere in this hospital are my daughters. I make my way down the corridor to the lift, grateful to my surgeon that I can walk, slow and stately but incontestably erect. Twelve hours have passed since my caesarean section. I have put in my contact lenses after the irrational but I suppose factually correct thought that my babies have never seen me in my glasses. For our reunion, I would like to look like myself. Neonatal intensive care unit. The doors of the NICU are always locked, and at this hour there is no one on reception. I stand outside for a long time, rocking from foot to foot, to ease the tightening vice of backache of which I am only now becoming aware, for all the world as if I am trying to soothe a baby. Finally, a passing doctor spots me and buzzes me in. Do I know where I'm going? I shake my head, no. What kind of a mother doesn't know where to find her children? It seems I am sobbing. How odd. I hadn't noticed until now. She shows me to some sinks and I wash my hands. I think the new twins are this way, she says, and I think, my daughters. At this hospital, the neonatal intensive care unit has wards of four beds and a minimum of two nurses present on each ward at all times, two babies assigned to each nurse. 
The soundtrack is a combination of control tower, server room, and a busy canteen as orders are called out and a thousand toaster ovens ping over and over. It is dark but for the banks of monitors displaying incomprehensible data. It could be the cockpit of a spaceship. Each small astronaut has a temperature monitor, an oxygen saturation probe, a series of heart monitors, and most have TPN, total parenteral <laughs> nutrition, which I've never learned how to pronounce, a mix of glucose, protein, and lipids provided by an intravenous pump. Any and all of these machines can beep, either to alert the nurses to a problem or sometimes simply just to say a quick, hello, no problem at present. The babies in this room, room one, are not well babies. One or other of their alarms go off somewhere in the region of once a minute, sometimes continuously. Over time, I will come to find the five rising notes of the TPN infusion pump particularly appalling, for this usually indicates that an intravenous cannula has been dislodged or occluded, and another one will need to be inserted, another procedure, another vein punctured. Beeping of any sort will set me on edge for a long time. At home, I will develop a habit of standing vigil by the microwave to stop it just before it finishes. These two on the left, side by side in two incubators, these two, says the doctor, they are my daughters. The room is in shadows, and each lies in a pool of sapphire light for jaundice. A is doll-sized, B is smaller still. Their skin is too fragile for clothes. They have been positioned on their stomachs, curled in deep oval nests of rolled towels and rough hospital sheets, printed with faded clowns beneath A and faded teddy bears beneath B. They are both wearing white cloth hats, white Velcro sunglasses, and their noses and mouths are obscured by a mask delivering continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, to force their stiff, unready lungs to breathe. A feeding tube disappears between their lips and down their throats. Their faces remain a secret known only to each other. They have no fingernails, no toenails, and later when they lose the Audrey Hepburn shades, I will see they have no brows or lashes. These are not essential components of a human being, for my daughters are clearly humanoid or perhaps superhuman in their appearance. I press my face to the glass. I see red starfish hands and fleshless arms, bone-shaped. I can trace their circulation, the fine leaf veining of tributaries clearly visible beneath their back's translucent skin. The exquisite transgression of their forming selves exposed, caught in the act of becoming. I feel my intrusion upon them. They were not ready. They are the furthest from me and the furthest from one another that they have ever been. I do not recognize them. They are otherworldly in their strangeness and oceanic in their beauty. They are half beings in the half light and in an instant my heart shatters and I become half a mother twice. I asked Francesca to read that bit because it encapsulates the story, but also I think the writing in it is so staggeringly, it's so moving. Sketch out for us the story. So what happened on the 1st of October 2015 and the 56 so, days that followed? Like, t tell us that arc first. So, well, perhaps I should have done that before I read. No, but, I think um, it's good to plunge in. Okay, you're plunged in now. Um, I um, was 35, pregnant for the first time with identical twins, which came as a considerable shock because my husband and I had decided, well, we both really wanted kids, but we were a little bit scared and slightly infantile about it and thought, well, the compromise, we will just have one. Um, so twins came as a, as a slight shock. 
um, although a very beautiful one. And I had a sort of nauseatingly easy pregnancy where I skipped around going to Pilates and felt fabulous and chose to completely ignore all the risk factors associated with being over 35, carrying identical twins and just sort of everything else, really. Um, and I felt like I was sort of immune to these statistics that were thrown at me. And then one morning, I woke up very early and thought, oh, God, there's the pelvic floor, gone, um, as billed. I've wet myself. Um, and actually, I turned the light on and realized I was, I was bleeding. Um, so I rushed to hospital and then had this weird 36 hours when uh, sort of they were coming or they weren't coming. I didn't quite know what was happening. And in the end, I gave birth to my twins at 30 weeks exactly, so 10 weeks early. Um, and they were both just a shade over two pounds each. And so they couldn't breathe, they couldn't regulate their own temperature, they couldn't feed by themselves, they needed a huge amount of medical intervention um, and subsequently spent 56 days in hospital. And so this book is my diary from that time, as much a love letter to my daughters as it is to the incredible NHS um, and also to the amazing group of women I met on the ward, this amazing sisterhood of women who I met in the expressing room, which we call the milking shed. Save that, we'll come back okay, to that. Okay, we'll come back to it. I've got special in interest in the okay. milking shed. But, but first of all, I wanted to ask, uh, one of the things that I think is amazing about this book, and I think you know we're familiar with tales of adversity and trauma, but they very often tend to be an individual doing something extraordinary against the odds. You're trapped to climbing a mountain and you have to saw your own arm off and crawl through, and it's like this individual succeeds. Right. What I found so moving about this book and, and so unusual is that it's about interdependence, it's about a community of care. Yeah. Looking after premature infants isn't something that one person can do. And I wanted you to just talk about that, that experience of communal care and survival, particularly in terms of the doctors and the nurses, both in its positives, but also in the ways that it was hard for you and challenging for you and Gabe. Well, I think, I mean, I imagine, the thing is, every new baby, even under the most sort of auspicious of circumstances, every new baby is its own crisis, which I think I was only able really to process with hindsight later. But, and so I but imagine the I always, crises vary in right, their absolutely. severity. But I imagine I always would have felt a sense that I was incompetent and had no idea what I was doing with a new baby at home and having to sort of learn to care for them. But it's an extraordinary thing when you actually cannot care for your own babies. I could not keep these babies alive. It was not something that was within my capability to do. I needed a huge number of people, a huge amount of expertise that I didn't have and a huge amount of extremely expensive medical equipment that I was privileged enough to have access to thanks to the country I was born in and the incredible socialised healthcare that we have. And so it was astonishing and humbling and very exquisitely painful to realise, as I did quite quickly, I, I, I can't do this job mm. and the doctors and nurses can. Mm. And they were amazing in encouraging us to express milk for the babies to be fed through their um, nasogastric tubes. I mean, that was something we could do, but that was really it. <laughs> Everything else that my body had been doing to that point had to be taken over by, you know, multi-million pound machines. So then how do the women of the milking shed fit into that dynamic? I think... Because that's the sort of saving grace of how painful that was. Yeah, I think... I mean, there's also just the fact that inevitably um, we had extraordinary care and almost everybody I encountered was amazing, but everybody is very, very busy. And the nurses, particularly at the beginning when you're in intensive care, 
vary in terms of how much they are willing to take time out of their extremely busy, very long shifts to teach you and empower you to then be able to take control of some small areas. You can't just go in and change the nappy of a baby in an incubator, for example. You need to be taught how to do it. You need to manipulate the wires. You need to know how to mm. handle them in a way that isn't going to compromise the integrity of their hips because you can't lift them in the same way as you would with a baby. And teaching a new mother how to do that takes a long time. And also and there's a language problem. Absolutely. That you don't speak a medical language that you're suddenly no. completely immersed in. And it's very frightening to say, I don't know, and can you teach me, and what's this? Some nurses are amazing about taking the time to say, to explain and teach you, and others would rather just very quickly change the nappy that needs changing and get on with something else. Mm. And I totally understand that because this is their day-to-day -day reality, but for us this was the crisis of our lives. Yeah. And so where the milking shed came in, where these other women came in, was this incredible source of information. You know, I sat there listening at the beginning and there were these other women who had clearly been there for weeks who knew each other very very well who knew each other's birth stories and knew exactly you know were kind of in touch with one another and on a minute by minute basis on the progress of their babies and they were the people who could explain what tpn stood for even though i still can't pronounce it they were the people who could say well in your room ward rounds at 10 15 so you can go out and you know express at 9 30. they were the people who said you know actually this nurse is the one you want to ask if mm. if you want to try and learn how to do you know and I would, I would come back to Gabe, my husband, and I would say, you know, we've got to be back in our room by 10.15. That's when Mordrand and he would say, how do you know? Who told you mm. that? And I said, well, it was one of the mums in the milking shed. So he wasn't having that experience of solidarity with the dads in the same no, way? No, on the contrary. I think the dads had a really, really different and quite difficult experience because they didn't have, first of all, they didn't have anything they could do, mm. practically. We could convince ourselves at a push that, you know, eating a pastry downstairs was in service of the babies because it's all for the milk the dads you know they weren't they weren't necessary in that same way and most of them had to go back to work after two weeks of paternity leave and they had no way of connecting with one another in the same way that we did and I think that's very hard mm. and you say something which I noticed was quoted there was a wonderful review of the book in the Guardian at the weekend and it pointed out this was a space in which there wasn't cattiness, there wasn't bitchiness, and there wasn't competition. And I think we're so used to hearing narratives that are about that, that it felt very... It's weird to say utopian about this book that's about something horrifying and traumatic and awful, but there is a utopian element of... You, you say somewhere, wherever we went, there were hands reaching out to catch us. And it yeah. wasn't just the milking shed, it's things like other mothers yeah. and other women knitting. Yeah, yeah say about the hats, because I found that so moving. Cardigans. I just, we were, it was the first, it was incredibly humbling to be, for the first time when I realised how privileged this sounds, to suddenly find myself being the recipient of charity. I've been lucky enough that that's not something I've needed, and all of a sudden we were receiving incredible support from Bliss, which is an amazing charity that provides information um, and sort of emotional support to parents um, of babies in neonatal intensive care, but also people were giving us beautiful things. There are groups of women. Um, church groups mostly who knit beautiful hats for the babies in intensive care and knit ba hats for babies considerably smaller than that, babies who don't make it. Um, that was the one that really got me. Yeah, they, and I just, the generosity of the people who spend the time and energy and love to create these beautiful, you know, cable knit garments with patterns on them and so, so mm. respectful and, mm. um, and touching. And one day I came in and these gorgeous little cardigans had appeared. They're really, they're dolls' clothes. I imagine they come from dolls' clothes patterns. And mm. we'd all been given one in the whole ward. And it's just so, the, the, that sort of 
I don't know, that generosity of strangers. And practicality. And practicality. And also knowing that actually it's impossible to buy clothes that small. And after mm. a certain point, it's, it's actually like a mother's pleasure to dress your babies, even if you might not be able to even lift them from their incubator. Mm. It's a gift to then be able to put that cardigan on your baby. So I was deeply moved by the kindness of all these people around us. Yeah. And then one of the, th one of the things that I found um, fascinating but intensely painful is these are, first of all, children who aren't supposed to be outside yet. They're not supposed to be existing yet. They're raw, basically. Yeah. They're uncooked. Yeah. And they're experiencing a reality that you, you're separated from them by way of the incubator, but you're also separated in that you can't really understand what experience they're having of life. You can't intervene into the experience that they're having, but you know that it's a painful experience. Yeah. So there was a line you said of, there cannot but be costs to these beginnings. And I wondered how you feel about that now that they are, the children are, by the way, completely fine. <laughs> there is a happy ending to this story. But I, I wonder how you, ref do you think about that at all now? Do you think that that was a revelation inside the moment that has now passed? I think, well, I think it's, to go back to what you said, it is important to say that this is, I, I wrote the book I longed to read when this was happening to me. That was one of my motivations in writing mm. the book. And, and I longed to, and that book I longed to read had a happy ending. Mm. And I've been lucky enough that my story yes. does have a very, very happy ending. My children are thriving and I'm very lucky um, that they um, are doing beautifully. Um, and they're now three. I think about it less and less. But at the time, it was something that I was sort of almost obsessed with. Mm. Um, and it seemed, it, it sort of waxed and waned in terms of, you know, when you were concerned about their existential, when there was existential threat, obviously that was not the primary focus. But yeah. when it seemed that they were getting better and it seemed that they, you know, they were going to come home, it's very hard not to think mm. of the emotional consequences, the attachment consequences, because we're all exposed to powerful campaigns that say you must have your baby skin to skin when they're born against your chest and mm. you know how important those first moments are and you know feeding we didn't, on demand feeding on demand and how, exactly all those messages which just if you are unable to do those things and actually lots of mothers are unable to do those things for myriad other reasons that mm. are not to do with prematurity what what we experience it as is just guilt 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 because mm. you can't you know they yeah. must have cried for me an awful lot and I wasn't even in the building yeah and couldn't be in the building. And couldn't be in the it building. It wasn't a possibility. No, there was nowhere for me to be, you know. At, at night, obviously, I was there during the day, but we all, there are no beds on the neonatal intensive care ward for the adults. So you have to go home to sleep and, you know. So another extraordinary line, which comes in a reflection about um, this, this sort of overwhelming revelation of love for these very vulnerable beings, and you're making some analogy between the channel that they're being fed by, through the open channel, I am inviting devastation. So this, this sort of idea that love and the level of love that you're feeling also involves a kind of openness that's annihilating and painful at the same time as beautiful and potent. I think what I can now say on reflection, uh, with sort of a longer term hindsight, is that I think that's love, isn't it? Mm. And that's parenthood. That's exactly why I wrote it down. Uh, yeah, so it's I like think that, that is love. It's not just about prematurity. No, it's about not love. at all. It's just all love is risk. Yeah. Um, and this, the revelation comes at that moment when you go beyond your boundaries. Yeah, it's, it's the antithesis of I am a rock, I am an island. It's yeah. opening yourself up to, you know, loss and pain and, and beauty and connection and power and all those, you know. 
I think that might be a good moment for the next reading. Oh, okay. All right. Also selected by Olivia. I love it when I'm people very tell controlling. Me what to do. <laughs> so this is from. This is from day seventeen, and I've never read it before. So forgive me if I stumble. This is from earlier that day. The baby A, who by this stage still had no name because we hadn't really thought of anything. Who we but we'd started calling Alet and Bealet. <laughs> she had had a suspected. Um, something called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is uh, death of the bowel. And they, it's a very serious infection that sort of ravages babies on the neonatal intensive care ward. And if babies at the birth weight that mine had, it has a survival rate of under 50%. So we spent a day thinking that she had neck. In actual fact, she didn't. So we had yet another reprieve. But that had been the day, and she was nil by mouth and suddenly receiving these powerful intravenous antibiotics. And this was... Um, when we went to visit a very hungry, very cross baby um, late at night after this sort of roller coaster of a day. Um, and Jamila is our nurse that night, who suggests, she said, we come in and Jamila said, she's, the baby's been very unsettled um, and would you like to hold her? I hadn't expected Ayla to be well enough for days. I all but tear open my shirt and Jamila sets the baby high upon my chest and instantly I can breathe. Tears run in a steady stream down the sides of my face, but I stay completely silent, completely still. She needs me calm, and so I choose to release the horror of the day and let it drift from me. But Aylet has other ideas. Far from settling, she is frantic now. Her head lurches from side to side, her mouth is working, her cries redoubled. It's as if the hunger has awoken her instincts for the first time. She knows what I am for now. Jamila looks down at her. Well, there's no mistaking what you want, Missy. She asks when I last expre expressed, and I tell her I've just now come from the pump. Poor darling, it's not good for her to be so upset. Let's get her to try. Jamila pushes us towards one another as if we are two shy children told to play. The pressure of Jamila's hand upon mine is far harder than I would have expected, and the stiff, angry baby latches on and softens, melting into my arms. She sucks as though she's always known it, only pausing after a moment to release a small mouse squeak of a sigh. The tender warmth of her mouth is as far from the unyielding brutality of the pump as I can imagine, and she is so small that my two hands touch as I hold her. I cannot take my eyes from the miracle that she is. This moment feels transgressive, it feels sacred, and I realize that Jamila has restored to us a stolen intimacy, has swept away an alienation I hadn't known lay between me and my daughters. I am feeding my baby. I have always been feeding her, in fact, and the infant knows it, and she knows me. I had felt myself taken from them so completely that I could not trust that my children recognized their mother until now. How could I know? This morning, I thought my daughter was dying. For a time, I believed that she was until alert and tireless medics laid down new track, benzyl penicillin, gentamicin, metronidazole, and upon these blessed rails her train could run a different course. Now we have arrived here. Tonight, for the first time, she lies in my arms and at my breast like a baby. And I recognize in my own shape the length of my bowed neck, the fall of my hair as I gaze down at my nursing infant, that my body is the shape of a mother. 
I think part, partly why I wanted you to read that is because it, it had begun to occur to me that part of, part of what's so moving about this story is you're not instantly a mother the second that you give birth. Yeah. You really have to become a mother and claim a mother's responsibilities and duties and rights step by inching step, often really having to fight for them on the way. And that wasn't by any means the end of the process. That's the staging phase. No, I think, I mean, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I did not feel myself a mother the moment that my babies were lifted um, from me on the operating table. I, it was a very hard one and slightly inelegant journey to get there. I felt like they were the property of the hospital that I was being given, I was being granted rights to visit and that I had to be on best behaviour and not put a foot wrong to, in, in order to be allowed to ultimately take them home. Um, and I was, was very that true. No, I don't think it was true at all. I mean, obviously, if I'd done something horrendous, then social services would have got involved. But, but when um, you're anxious about social, when about you're anxious your about everything, and there are psychosocial notes, and they're quite copious. And I would, mm. one of the things I learned to do was read the notes from the time I'd been away. I'd come in in the morning and read the hospital notes to find out what had happened the, overnight. Um, and they would come to make more and more sense the longer you were in hospital, the more this sort of the jargon made sense. But there mm. are psychosocial notes, and so I would see mum having a very hard time today, mm. and that sort of thing. And that would feel, or you know, the awful thing no sign of mum as yet and you think oh where were you selfridges <laughs> you know you think your shift only started at 8.30 and you're doing your notes at 9.15 I mean all right I was in the break <laughs> but um but that sort of thing with hindsight of course these are loving you know they're loving and important um structures in place but they felt judgmental at the time mm. and so I felt like I was having to sort of perform and be good enough worthy of these children and it took time I did not have the natural instinct to come in and question anything and I certainly didn't realize until much later on that the only advocate these children had was me mm. and the only person who was there every single day was me and my husband you know so the nurses and doctors were incredible and and taking fantastic care of them but they were on shifts and we were not. We were the people who were, you know, sort of the only eyes on, mm. um, on everything that was happening. And so, but it took me time to, to realise that actually I could say, excuse me, I think actually that was done yesterday or actually I think you'll find, you know, her feed was put up yesterday, that's the wrong, you know, the calculation's wrong. Tiny things, but actually that's what a parent in a hospital does. Mm. But I didn't know that because they didn't feel like, they didn't feel like my children for a while. Because yeah, you, you woke up to find them in a... You never had that moment of encountering them in the first place. I loved them deeply, but I wasn't caring for them. And it took me time to realise that, therefore, I could assert myself. Because there are people who are, mm. who are just... It's a reality, better at looking after them than you are. Mm. To then question those people or assert yourself in any way, just, it just didn't occur to me for a long time. And it was only watching other mothers um, that I learned really how to be with them. It was watching other mothers that made me realise that I could sing to them. It, it wouldn't have occurred to me that I could sit in a ward of other people and sing the same lullabies I would have sung to my babies at home. I had to learn that through hearing other people's lullabies. Mm. And by the end, you know, I was doing full jazz hands <laughs> performances. Um, but those are the things you sort of catch from one another, like a sort of benign virus that passes around. You think, oh, I could do that. I could bring in something that they could see in their cot. I could put a photo of myself next to them. Oh, you know, I actually didn't do that, but lots of people didn't. I wish I had. Why not? They probably can't see it, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so changing, changing tack slightly, 
I want to talk about how you went from this experience to this yeah. this particular outcome of the story, which is deciding to turn it into a book. Like, tell tell us when you decided that you wanted to, and whether you had a sort of quandary about telling your own story, the hospital story, and your children's story. Um, well, this is an interesting tale because you have mm. a, you have an instrumental role in it, which I will come to in a minute. Um, <laughs> I had many questions about writing. First of all, I thought I would never write this book. This was the last book I ever would have written. I'm not a non-fiction writer. It seemed deeply, deeply personal. The exposure of it, of me and my children, just would not have crossed my mind. And then about a year after they came out of hospital, they're now three, about a year after they came out of hospital, I thought I would try. And that was when I told you it was something I was writing. Um, and then it just felt deeply wrong and I wasn't I wasn't ready and it wasn't working and I put it aside and thought, well, that was a terrible idea. Um, no, 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 no. And then time passed and I think I was in a different emotional space and my girls were discharged from cons their consultant's care and I felt that I could say that they were fine. And then I had lunch with you and another mutual friend of ours and you said to me, are you still writing that book? And I said, no way. And then Olivia and this other friend of ours ganged up on me for an entire hour. And I'd love to say it wasn't an hour, but it was actually an hour because she's very stubborn. <laughs> and said, you have to write this book, you have to write this book, you have to write this book. And you made a very good case for it. And, and really, that's why. I left that lunch so inspired and I thought, actually... Seeing it through the eyes of other people and seeing that it could be important and then it might, I hoped, touch people who had been through not just this but any sort of parenting outside of the mainstream and that actually I could suddenly see in it this friendship group, the amazing story of the friendships was also a story that wasn't just for mothers, it's not mm. just a book for parents um, and then I suddenly thought yes I do want to try and write this book and from that point on after that sort of fourth start a year before it just came it almost appeared fully formed in my head and I thought this this is the book I have to write. And then I'm really fascinated by the practicalities because it feels very immersive it feels like you're following things minute by minute but I don't think you kept a diary did you keep a diary? How did you construct I, it? I kept a sort of scrappy, intermittent diary where I would write things. It wasn't really a diary, but I would write something somewhere and then lose it. Yeah. Um, and then refind it again. It's certainly, I was not sitting down and writing every day. But you um, had plenty of sources when you came back to it later. When I came back to it, well, I walked from that lunch to the hospital, to the first. We were in two hospitals, and I walked to the first of them, which happened to be not so far, and I ordered up our hospital notes. Oh, which, wow. Yeah. That day? Oh, that day. No, no, from, immediately from that lunch. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it was about a 25-minute walk. And on the way, I got sort of more and more determined until I marched and said, I would like to see a copy of... And then this extraordinary archive box then was delivered. And so I read through all of our hospital notes, mine and both girls. And what was that like as an experience in itself? Really? Harrowing. Vindicating, actually. Because lots of things I thought I might have misremembered then were proven to be sort of exactly as I remembered them. So I was really glad. It was actually quite cathartic to read through those notes. And so a combination of that and then WhatsApp is an extraordinary resource because um, mm. I was, my husband, it's stupid, but, you know, my husband went back to work after two weeks. And oh, so, so you were I was, reporting so to I him. So I was reporting to him endlessly. And he, to me, if he was the one there and I was 
at home or pumping or whatever. You know, there was this dialogue. And then with the other women, um, mm. there were thousands of messages because we were stuck next to incubators in a silent ward for most of the day. So we would be communicating with one another across, across the room, really. And so I downloaded desktop WhatsApp and read through all this communication. Wow. And that was really, that was the most immersive return to it that I could have, you know. It was everything from what pastry I was having to exactly how many mils of milk they'd been able to have that morning to, you know, ludicrous articles on the Daily Mail that we were sending each other because there's really not that much to do or think about. Mm. Um, so that was really, it, that just took me straight back into it, really. And that's part of what makes it so... Um, it, I think counteracts what could possibly be sentimental is that it's so full of details of the kind of muffins you're eating and the kind of things you're saying to each other. Muffins WhatsApp. are very important. Muffins seem like a big deal in intensive care. <laughs> but a sort of ancillary question to that is, I'm interested by what it's like to write about the traumatic. The traumatic is, by its nature, resistant to language. But you're finding language for these emotional states, not just your own, but your sort of imagination of what the children are going through. But, and this is a gift you have as a novelist anyway. I think there, there are, it's really something that you're exemplary at, is being able to find a language for very specific emotional states. But in, in this case, they're states of despair, states of anguish. And I want to know, like, what was the process of doing that? What was, what was your writing process like? Once you've got the sort of network of details of what you did each day. I, this was the most fluent writing experience I've ever had. And it's the least yeah. edited work yeah. I've ever written. Um, my fiction is worked and reworked and reworked to a point of sort of obsession. Um, and this, there are great tranches of this that just had their typos corrected, basically. I think yeah. that was the difference with that this was something that was... Not raw in the sense that I hadn't wanted to live out some sort of form of catharsis in public. I didn't want this to be a sort of dear diary, today I am blue. And then I, I think I, to me it felt indulgent to try and work through anything in public. I wanted it worked through in private and then I, I wanted to do the processing before the writing. But yeah. the writing itself was very raw. And that was really distinct from, you know, I can spend a whole day removing and reinserting an adjective. Yeah. Um, when I'm writing fiction, and this was exactly the opposite of that. Yeah, um, but I'm interested in you saying it's not cathartic because it seemed to me like just the act of sh making something shapely out of something that yeah. was so deranged must have had, not, not cathartic necessarily, but must have had some sort of organising function. Yeah, I, th did, I think. Did that's you feel true. driven no, to I write think, it for I those sorts of reasons? Right. Well, I think it's just that impulse to, to make a to make story art out of it. Also, yeah. that impulse to make art from horror, and and also to find the humour and sort of moments of light, and to capture what had been an extremely difficult experience with moments of great beauty and um, ambivalence and conflict, um, sort of conflicting experiences. And also, like I said, a story with a happy ending that did actually have, I suppose, had more narrative cohesion to it than it felt when I was living through it. When you didn't know how it was Well, it wasn't end. a foregone conclusion, right, exactly. Um, so yes, no, that, I think the act of having written it probably has cathartic elements, but I didn't want the sort of, I didn't want to be finding out how I felt about it. 
as I wrote, if that makes sense. And is that part of why you chose to do it as a diary structure so that it's unfolding in front of you day by day rather than a sort of reflected narrative? Did it always feel like it had to be a diary? It was never going to be a reflected narrative. It yeah. always felt like it had to be a diary. It, that was the only way that it sort of, that it made sense to me as a... Because it was so much of it was the experience is disjointed and so I needed a form that had that was elastic enough to be able to contain an entry that was a sentence and an entry that was an essay and something that was mm. a digression and then something that was a WhatsApp conversation because mm. my life was mad and I needed a slightly mad sort of elastic form. And it feels like it is a form that rep I'm not a parent and I haven't had those experiences but it felt to me like it caught at all sorts of experiences of pain and loss and anxiety, but partly because the structure just mirrors those sort of states, the way we live through those states, that not knowing what's going to happen the next day and being caught in a, in a now, yeah. a terrifying now or, a, or an ecstatic now. I think this might be a good moment to open out to you guys. Thank you very much for um, your readings. I really loved both your novels and I'm looking forward to reading this. I was interested in what you just said about um, you didn't want to be working it through while you were writing. You wanted to have it worked through. But uh, from your chronology of how you went about it, I don't know how you could have worked it through before you wrote it. Could you say a little bit more about, about that? I think maybe I wasn't clear. I, no, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> I, I think I, I was working through something as I wrote it, but I suppose I didn't want to present something confused or unconcluded to a reader, I think. I think I wanted the final book to have within it my... a more organised reflection. So... and that's where I ended in the book. It is inherently... that it, it is a diary, and so it is very much my confused and immediate reactions day by day. But I wanted myself to be in a place where I felt at peace with what we'd been through and understood what it meant for me before I finished the book, if that makes sense. I didn't want to be living... I think that was actually why it felt wrong a year earlier, because a year earlier, um, my girls were under one. Um, I didn't really know what the long-term consequences for them would be cognitively, physiolo physiologically. I really didn't know... It was still very much happening, and I think that was what I meant. I didn't want it to be something that was that I didn't know how I felt about. You reference a, a bit well. of Roland Barthes in there. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, is that was that something you read at some point in the process? How come that was the one thing that kind of got in as an intertext in the book? It sort of resonated just because it's a stupid thing to say, but it was the same day of the calendar. I think it was the 27th of October or something like yeah. that. I read bits and pieces, but what I really wanted was this. I was very literal at that time, and I wanted to read... I was obsessively reading people's prematurity blogs on the internet, and I wanted my story with a happy ending. And I also wanted to know... There's an amazing amount of literature out there about how to hold a premature baby and how to do skin-to-skin -skin and how to express and that sort of thing. But I wanted to know how to live... And that's what you get from literature. I wanted someone, you know, we were always being told, talk to your babies. But I wanted to know what to say. You know, I, <laughs> I didn't know what they wanted to hear about. And, like, was mm. it okay that the thing that I really sort of felt like doing was reading to them from my Twitter feed? Because it was a really long day and I kind of wanted to check Twitter because by the seventh hour on the 41st day, you need to pass the time. So, you know, was it all right to read to them from the 
sidebar of shame in the Daily Mail? Was that what everyone else was doing? Was everyone else reading Winnie the Pooh? Um, that's the kind of thing that I needed. I needed either fiction or a non or exactly this, a diary of someone going through it to tell me. How, I don't know. I just wanted to know. I wanted to know how other people were existing in this space, and that was what all the leaflets in the world can't really tell you. Mm. You know, sort of how to learn how to sing to your bit. You know, what what everyone else was singing and what they. It was. Was everyone else going home and crying? Did they, did everyone else sit? You ha you have to wake up. You have to express through the night as you would if you were feeding a baby, if you want your milk supply to keep up with the baby. So I was setting my alarm to express milk at midnight and then at three in the morning. How did everyone else spend that time? I wanted to know, you know, I wanted that insight into those moments that only literature can offer, I think. And then a side, we'll come back, but a side question to that. Um, did it, you're a novelist, did it Did it ever seem like you might want to make it a novel? Never. Definitely not? Never, never. Because that would transgress on what had really happened to you and your girls, you and I your think family. so. That felt too, it, it, it wasn't for me. I totally mm. would understand that impulse and I would read that novel in a heartbeat. Um, but it, it wasn't material that was available to you for that process? It wasn't material available to me for that process, no, exactly. It was in a totally different space. That's a really interesting way to put it, that's exactly right. I wanted to ask a question about audience. <clears throat> audience? Yeah, not me. I mean, <laughs> the book's audience. Yeah, so, I, it is a wonderful book. Um, it is um, a deeply moving book. I loved it. I was thinking that um, one of the things the book can do is improve even more the NHS. Um, and I was wondering how, not exactly how conscious you were of that, but how conscious you are now of how much you want that book to be read by neonatal consultants and nurses and other people because although it is obviously something that is of fantastic importance for mothers of prem babies I think it could have a really important effect on the NHS as well and there are moments in the book where you recoil in horror from the lack of empathy on the part of the the staff, uh, both to the babies and to the mothers? I think that's a really, really interesting question. And it, it would be, it, it would sort of mean everything if it were able to have that kind of an impact. I gave, I gave two, I was lucky enough that a very dear paediatrician who may be sitting over there and um, one of the, um, and who may also be my sister's godfather, <laughs> read it for me and corrected um, as many medical errors as I was able to correct. Any that remain are completely my fault. Um, but I also gave the book to one of the neonatologists who took care of us, um, who very kindly read it for me. And I was totally overjoyed and moved when he wrote back to me and said, I think this should be required reading for all neonatologists, and I'm going to give it to the student doctors who come in. Oh. That is... It, there was... There are moments where, inevitably, as human beings, everybody can have a failure of imagination. But it would be incredible if some of those failures of imagination were corrected. Um, and, um, and some of the things that are just easy to fix. A, certain, a lot of the things that were difficult for us um, are very hard to fix because they're just to do with money and the lack of it within um, the health system. But there are certain things like 
you know, I asked this amazing group of women with whom I'm still in touch, I asked just yesterday, what had they wished that they'd known um, when they were in intensive care? Because I was asked um, by somebody, I was recording a video for the BBC website, giving these sort of weird tips for babies of mothers of premature babies. And these answers came back from these women, things they wished they'd known. And one of them was something that I had felt deeply and had been through almost exactly myself, which was coming in one day to find her baby clothed. Mm. And the babies are naked, their skin is too fragile for clothes. And one day, when they're doing better and it's a good thing, the temperature of the incubator is turned down a few degrees and a baby grow goes on the baby. And it would have meant the world to me and to this other mother who's a friend of mine, and we'd never talked about this, but she'd been through exactly the same thing. We had both arrived one morning to find our baby dressed. Mm. And it would have been so important to us had we just been allowed to choose that baby grow and put it on ourselves and that doesn't cost anything and that's the kind of thing if that could mm. be just an awareness of those things and I think there is an increasing awareness there are amazing um, initiatives I think that are slowly creeping into creeping in towards but it would I, I can't think of anything that I'd be prouder of to be honest than if if it could make some kind you know small changes like that uh, thank you so much for um, this evening. Um, I was premature and um, I think I get a sense that this book will really help me understand some of my parents' experiences of what that might have been like. Um, and I have spoken to them about it kind of over the years, but I was interested whether that's something that you will do with your girls. I know they're quite young, but like, is that something you'll do? Will you hope they read the book? Will you hope they don't read the book? What are your feelings about that? Mm. I wrote the book for them, really. I want them to read it, and I want them to... I was very much aware, and I was very much aware writing it that they, they may not read it, they may never be interested, but I wanted to write a book that they would be proud of and that would tell them something about their beginnings. They know, they're only three, but they do know that this book is about them. <laughs> they take it completely for granted. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was important to me to tell their story and to record record it for them I think that was um, that was very much part of my motivation I, I, I went through a similar well I, I had twins uh, my wife and me had twins in New York City and they um, developed they were in ICU and they were premature and it's quite extraordinary really to sort of sit here and listen to you and sort of start to sort of return to it and to and um, what I'm realizing is the fear. There was the intense, the revelation of love you mentioned has really jumped out, but there was the fear, and it's the trauma, isn't it? The traumatic experiences before you know there's going to be a happy ending. I wonder what it was like to be returning to that when you're writing. No, it's a really interesting question. I think there are parts of the experience that that are impossible to recover from, but there is something deeply, deeply healing about every day, about the quotidian experience of parenting two three-year-olds. Um, it's uh, Children are so very much in the now that there isn't really time to, to go back to those moments. And perhaps it's interesting, I mean, I'm assuming from what you say, your girls are a little older than mine. So I, and so maybe in later years, I'll reflect on it in a different way, but there is just, you know, the immediacy of needing to wipe Weetabix off the wall again <laughs> and 
singing with them and being with them and taking them to and from school, all of that is, is healing in its own sort of very, very deep way. And so actually I found the experience of going back to it was, it sort of almost showed me how far I'd come actually to go back to that intense fear because I am so far from, no, you know, I'm, I'm no longer there. When I read the extract in the Sunday papers, I've never had an experience before where I actually couldn't get through an extract without having to stop and process what, what I was reading. And sitting here today, this evening I have a different thought of what a gift you've given to so many people. You know, what I've just heard now, I hadn't even thought of that because, but, but we were lucky to have three healthy sons, but we do know that unit that we spoke that you spoke of from one of our grandchildren. Just the way you, you write about it. My question though is, is something different, which is you mentioned this evening that you thought, you and your husband, that you might have one child. And thank God you've got two, you had two healthy children and you've got a third. And I wondered if that's the subject for the next book, or if you could say, <laughs> say something about that journey. Yeah, I do. I do have a third. I do have a very, very tiny baby at home. I don't know that I have so much to say. She's, it's been an entirely different experience. My third daughter was not premature. She went full term. It's probably not a coincidence that every one of the four of us in my WhatsApp group we've all gone on to have other mm. children and actually everyone's been lucky enough that we've all gone full term or close to it that's not strictly true but close enough that it was not the first experience um, repeated and so there probably was an element of catharsis and that urge to try again and do it differently I think I've just been incredibly lucky that that is how it's been um, but you know I don't I don't think she'll get a book I don't think unfortunately <laughs> she's not yet done it like thank god she's not done anything book worthy <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it stays that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> She's only 14 weeks, there's time. <laughs> I think we've run out of time, but I hope you'll all join me in thanking Francesca. I think I feel like this book, the word gift really comes to mind. It's not a word I normally use to talk about books, but it, it is a gift. It's, it's a very generous book and it's a revelatory book. And I hope you all love it and sob as much as, as I did. Francesca, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.